Episode two of SciFix. Um, we actually got through one already, so this Ooh. is now an official series. <laughs> Officially. Officially. Um, so today we're going to talk about a couple of things, um, but we are going to talk about the second Hugo award-winning novel, uh, They'd Rather Be Right, better known as The Forever Machine uh, by it's Clifton a, and Riley. It's a fun one. It's a fun one, all right. Um, if you Google world's worst Hugo novel, uh, you will probably come up with this novel. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a joke in the sci-fi community. It's like, at least my novel is not as bad as they'd rather be right. Uh, <laughs> stuff like that. So We did the hard work for you, so you don't actually have to read it. You can just listen to us talk exactly. about it. <laughs> you don't have to read this stinker. We did it for you, so just listen to us trash it. All right. Um, so... I decided, well, we decided, I didn't decide it myself, um, at the beginning of every episode, we'll have kind of an introduction to a topic or a theme, um, something to try to get us, you know, going into the, into the subject and uh, not just jump straight into the book. Um, so I thought... This, this came up because uh, at work, I think I even asked you because I was listening to another podcast, they were talking about hard and soft science fiction. Yeah. I was yeah, like, Tim, yeah. what the heck is hard and soft science what fiction? Is so I was like, eggs. Eggs. Hard boiled <laughs> and soft boiled science fiction. Yeah. Um, is there really a difference between the two? So um, first I'll kind of give a definition of each one. Hard science fiction uh, is was first coined, uh, the term was first coined by P. Schuyler Miller. He was a sci-fi writer and a bibliographer of Conan tales. He's, he kind of put together the first bibliography of Conan stories. And he first term, uh, coined the term in 1957 in a review of John W. Campbell's Islands of Space collection. Uh, before that, nobody had really used that term, hard science fiction. Even though Hugo Grinsbach, you remember Hugo from episode one, oh, yeah. the, the guy who poster these awards boy. are named after, the poster boy of the Hugo Awards, uh, he insisted from the very beginning that uh, science fiction should be instructive and it should be science-based. And if it's not, then it's not really science fiction. Sounds a little pretentious. Yeah. Um, I get it, but... I get it. I get it. He was reacting to a lot of what he saw as poofy fantasy fantasy stories that were coming mm. along that didn't really they didn't really have a story and they weren't really science fiction and they were more what we would call sword and sorcery fantasy and he just wasn't in, he wasn't interested in that so that's where that came from i think that's fair yeah so one one definition of hard science fiction is that it should be procedural the science should follow scientific protocols and procedures now they may be proven to be wrong later on. That's okay. Most hard sci-fi uh, writers emphasize the, the hard sciences. So sometimes people hear hard and soft science. It kind of goes along with hard and soft science fiction. Uh, technology like computers, physics, astronomy, chemistry, uh, hard science that is based in physical reality, right? Ben Bova, the writer, uh, says that a good measure of hard sci-fi is that if you take the science out of the story, the story collapses. There's nothing left. So, so it's a big main part 
of the story. Like it yes. drives everything. Exactly. It has to be there. Otherwise you're like, what's the point of this story? Mm-hmm. The, the, the science is gone. There's nothing left. Um, and eight, like I said before, even if those ideas are proven incorrect later on by subsequent research or, or new techniques that come along, that doesn't invalidate the stories um, because they are based in currently available scientific principles. For an example, uh, a high school class in Florida uh, read Ringworld by Larry Niven, and their teacher had them calculate some of the physical characteristics of the ring world. And they found out that the topsoil on the ring world would have slid into the oceans, which are kind of situated in the middle of the ring world, and then there's shores on either side. They would have slid into the oceans after a few thousand years. Uh, And Niven should have known this because he's a physicist, (laughs) but he didn't figure it out. He acknowledged that later on in in the sequel, uh, The Ringworld Engineers, and said, okay, I made a mistake. This class figured it out, and I fixed it in this book. So So he literally wrote a book being like continuing the story, but also fixing his scientific mistake. Yes, exactly. Whoa, okay. So that is – that would be kind of the example of how hard science fiction should work, right? I see. It corrects itself. It corrects itself, exactly. Even though that doesn't mean, you know, the mistakes that were made before, they're still okay because that's how science works. Mm-hmm. Um, some examples of uh, hard science fiction authors and works uh, would be probably some things that people are familiar with. Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which is a Hugo winner we're going to read later on. Uh, Hal Clement's Mission of Gravity, which actually came out in the same year that They'd Rather Be Right came out. Oh. Uh, Fred Hoyle, The Black Cloud, Arthur C. Clarke's 2001. Most people are familiar with that one. Uh, Again, Larry Niven's Ringworld. Mm -hmm. Michael Crichton's Andromeda Strain. uh, The Asimov uh, Foundation series. Nancy Kress, Beggars in Spain. That was a little bit later. And Shishin Lose the Three-Body Problem. Okay. So those are some examples of what might be considered hard hard science fiction, even though they probably have some soft sci-fi elements to them. Um, are they kind of, because uh, a lot of these I haven't personally read, are they harder reads because of how sciencey they can get? Like, is that kind of a characteristic? Not characteristic necessarily. Um, okay. So Ringworld is not a hard book to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's got fascinating characters, um, lots, of, lots of interesting sociological details, uh, political ideas, social ideas, but it, it is based in hard science. Mm-hmm. Um, the Foundation series I don't think is particularly hard to read. Mm-hmm. The Three-Body Problem is hard to read. Yeah. It is a fantastic book, but it's it's sometimes a little bit difficult to get through some of the physical ideas that they're talking about it. Because so it's really, a, it comes down to like the the author's ability to to write well and to also express these really dense in in, intense scientific principles in like a readable, understandable way. That is a fantastic way to look at it, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're a good enough writer to use these ideas and put them forth in a way that readers can understand, you've done your job well. Uh, I think for the most part, most of those writers do that, Mm -hmm. um, with, you know, some exceptions. Um, But yeah, I think those are good examples of hard science fiction. Um, so So soft science fiction, on the other hand, didn't really get uh, coined until the 1970s. So this is basically 20 years after hard science fiction is kind of developed. Um, Peter Nichols, a literary scholar, was the first one to come up with this idea. 
So where hard sci-fi is kind of based in the hard sciences, technology and physics uh, and chemistry, um, soft science fiction is based in the soft sciences, uh, biology, psychology, sociology, anthropology, a lot of ologies. Probably you could add psychology. I did add psychology. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there's a little bit of overlap with the hard sciences, but in soft science fiction, uh, there's more of a more of an emphasis on those softer sciences. And this kind of developed from new wave science fiction, which is a huge topic, and I'm, we don't have time to talk about it all here. It developed out of soft science fiction, and um, cyberpunk was another thing that kind of developed from that. Uh, the new wave started kind of in the 1960s, and a lot of writers were like, you know, we're tired of this, you know, typical, you know, spaceships and aliens tropes that we've seen in, in science fiction for 40 years. It's getting Let's a do, little stale. It's getting very stale. Let's do something different. So they were looking at new, radical, different literary styles, um, inclusion of women uh, and writers of color. You start seeing a lot more of those in the 1960s than you did before. Mm -hmm. um, so the new wave was kind of where soft science fiction got its start. And then cyberpunk came on a little bit later, uh, and it has kind of the crime noir elements and dystopian uh, elements that, that you didn't really see before. You saw some, like in Alfred Bester, uh, but it didn't really get developed until the 70s and 80s. So anyway... Those are kind of the differences between hard and soft science fiction. Uh, and it might give you, those of you who weren't really sure what the differences were, those are the differences. Although you should just be aware, there's always overlap. And none of these things are set in stone. So um, some examples of soft science fiction authors and works would be like we read uh, for the first episode, Alfred Bester's The Demolished Man is kind of looked at as the prototypical soft science fiction book, even though it came out in 1953. Okay. Uh, it kind of set the standard for those things. Yeah, because there was no like hard and fast science going on there. It was all like maybe theoretical and just exactly. like, philosophical almost like, oh, what if people could do this thing with their minds? What would happen? Right. I see. Right. Lots of psychology, lots of Freudian imagery that we talked about before, mm -hmm. uh, lots of sociological elements. So, um, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Practically everything by Philip K. Dick is considered soft sci-fi. Dune, which a lot of people are are kind of surprised by. Uh, Frank Herbert's book is is really not about the science. It's more about the politics and the sociological elements of being on this new planet. Um, That's something Samuel. I wouldn't have actually expected as well. But like thinking about everything you just said, yeah. uh, there's really no like actual science. It's all about like this world's Right, science right. and you know they have yeah. they have technology but nobody ever really tries to describe what it does or how it works no, so they don't need to it's not important it's like it's not important worms. we're here we're not going to talk about that stuff we're going to talk about sandworms and the all gods are on the planet and, and the Benny Gesserit and all that crazy stuff mm -hmm. um Samuel R. Delaney uh who wrote a lot about sociology in in sci-fi Ursula K. Le Guin as you will learn, one of my favorites, um, Octavia Butler and William Gibson. So those are some primary examples of soft science fiction authors. So for what we uh, for what we read just now, they rather rather be right. That's definitely soft science fiction, isn't it? I yeah, I would definitely consider like 100%. it soft science. Even okay. though you know the central 
element in the story is a supercomputer, they really never describe how it works or, or what makes it work. Uh, it's just about how does it interact with human beings? I see. Uh, how, does it, how does it change human life? It really doesn't have anything to do with the actual physical construction of, of the computer. So. Yeah. Well, anyway. thank gosh that they really flesh out every single idea that they write about in this book. <laughs> <laughs> they did. Oh, boy. Let me just tell you. So Hugo Award-winning novel for 1955. They'd Rather Be for Right, uh, a.k.a. The Forever Machine by Mark Clifton and Frank Riley. Um, anything you want to say before we jump into this? Oh, boy. Yeah, I've got a lot of things I could say, but. They might wait. Um, Honestly, though, this was a book that going into it, I was already kind of expecting to not like it, which (laughs) honestly wasn't a good way to go into it. Reading it, which I read it twice. What I actually actually (laughs) retained from those two readings, I can't even confidently say. Well, you know, that's fair. I think a lot of people that read this feel the same way. <laughs> well, because it's like, it's almost like I read two different stories, really. Like, there was, mm-hmm. like, the very small sliver of a plot happening, but it's like, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. That's cool, but, right. oh, who's this? Pr- oh, God, what's happening? Like, <laughs> What is going on now? Who are these people, and what do they have people? to do with this story? Yeah. Um, okay, so just a quick note about Clifton and Riley. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Clifton was an American sci-fi writer, uh, he wrote mainly uh, short stories, and, and some of them were, were based on the bossy computer that we're going to talk about in, the, in this episode. And then there was a Ralph Kennedy series, which was a little bit lighter in tone. Uh, and he always collaborated with other writers, so it wasn't he didn't really write on his own. Um, the most success that he ever had was with this novel, and as you'll find out, is probably the most contentious novel ever to win the award. And there are a lot of theories as to how this happened. Nobody really knows for sure why uh, the Hugo Committee decided to vote for this book that year. Um, But he wrote a lot about ESP and psionics and resistance to science and mass delusions and AI. So, I mean, these were ideas that were familiar to him. He just maybe, maybe didn't hit the ball out of the park on this one. So, It's almost like he didn't just give himself not even enough time, but enough, like, just space to really flesh out all of these ideas. It's like he had all these ideas and like frantically was like, I need to create one book, like my masterpiece of 200 pages. You know, (laughs) he probably could have made a trilogy out of this and it maybe would have been better. Yeah. So I don't know, but I don't know that he was thinking that way because he came up, you know, in the early 50s, 40s and 50s when, you know, most books were serialized in magazines like we talked about before. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's thinking, I got to get this copy ready. I got to send this to the editor so I can get it published. He may not be thinking in those long terms of, you know, novel writing because, you know, science fiction novels were new then and, Mm -hmm. and nobody really knew how to write them yet. So to be fair to him, maybe he just, he was on the the leading edge of something he didn't really understand. Yeah. Anyway. Now what about uh, Frank Riley? What was his deal? Frank Riley was, uh, there's not a lot about him. He was a syndicated travel columnist for the LA Times um, and a travel writer. And he, and he traveled the world writing uh, for the newspaper for a really long, long time. And he collaborated with Clifton in a couple of stories and on this book. And he didn't really write any other fiction. So uh, not really sure how he got involved with this project. But somehow he did. And, he must uh, have stumbled paths in a, 
in a bar or something. And just yeah, kinda... or maybe, maybe, maybe at the Hydra Club. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Anyway, so basic plot of this book uh, is that a super, there's a supercomputer called Bossy uh, that's built by Professor Dwayne Hoskins, who is a professor of cybernetics at the fictional Hawksworth University. Um, and it's stolen by its creators uh, to prevent the government from seizing it and use it for what they call opinion control. So apparently this story is set in a time period where the government keeps a tight rein on opinions and ideas and uses lots of propaganda to keep people in their places. So uh, the computer is capable of regenerating organic cells and it can, it can change people from, you know, elderly, decrepit, maybe moribund people that are about to die, change them into young people again, increase their intelligence and endow them with psychic abilities in some Only cases. very certain people, right? Certain people, yes. Not all people. So mm -hmm. you have to be a special case and we'll talk about that. Um, so that's kind of what this book is about. Um, they steal this computer back. They don't want it to be used by the, the government and they're hiding out in in this little safe house uh, when, this, when the story starts. And then all of these hijinks ensue. And uh, we'll talk some about that. So let me just go over really quickly some of the characters in the book. Uh, won't spend as much time with them as we did last time, but um, because they're really, they're really not that important. They're just, they're talking points for the philosophical ideas anyway. Yeah, there's really not too much to say about any of them because they didn't, didn't get that much time to be fleshed out. So mm -hmm. Not at all. So there's Joe Carter. He's, he's kind of the main character, the protagonist. He's a telepath. Uh, nobody knows it except for one other person. And he has kind of special insight into the Bossy Project. And you find out later that he's only like 21 years old. And you're thinking, how is he involved with this project? Um, there's Professor Dwayne Hoskins that I mentioned before. He's in charge of Bossy, the computer. Uh, and there's Dr. Billings, his um, his compatriot, uh, who's the dean of psychosomatic medicine at Hawksworth. Uh, these guys have ridiculous titles. Yeah. There's Bossy, who's kind of a character. Uh, and she's the cybernetic computer that's capable of regenerating human cells. And they call her Bossy because apparently she looks like the head of a cow. Um, and you, nobody calls cows bossy anymore, but that's, that's kind of an archaic term for what you used to call a cow. Um, <laughs> I don't really understand where that came from, but anyway. Uh, there's Mabel, who is an elderly woman, a former prostitute, who is the first person that's transformed by bossy. Uh, Howard Kennedy is an industrialist who takes control of the bossy project. We think you know, he's kind of a bad guy at first, but it turns out he's not so bad. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Carney, uh, who's kind of a two-bit hood and a pawn shop owner. He's also transformed. He's a second pers person transformed by Bossy. And then there's uh, the glad-hander, happy-go-lucky guy, Steve Flynn. He's the publicity agent for uh, Howard Kennedy. And he kind of takes control of creating good buzz for Bossy um, when it becomes known that that they're going to use it in public and show people how how this can be a good project. It essentially becomes uh, in the story, like once society kind of figures out what is happening, it's like, oh, this is the fountain of youth. It could Wait make minute, everyone yeah. beautiful and young. We can all be beautiful and young again. All we have to do is go and get our transformation. And all we got to do is wait our time. And as soon as they start to 
there, there's an idea to mass produce bossy and make one for everybody so that everybody can transform themselves and their you know the looks and, and intelligence of their life can be possible um doesn't quite work out that way but let's talk about some of the themes in the book uh, rather than go through plot points so there's there's a popular resistance to science and scientific progress throughout the book uh, despite the obvious benefits that bossy might give to people a lot of people are suspicious of change and they don't want to undergo that for scientific advancement. They, they cling to their beliefs and they're like, no, no, I don't want to do that. That's, that's not safe. I trust what I am. I don't want to change. Mm-hmm. So um, you see that in one chapter particularly, which is where the title of the book comes from. Um, people don't want to be immortal or super smart or telepathic. They'd rather be right about things. They would rather say, I told you so, that thing's dangerous. I'll just stay the way I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, apparently Mark Clifton uh, was an industrial psychiatrist uh, in his job, and he interviewed 100,000 people, apparently, on um, various scientific topics and industrial topics, and he got this idea uh, from all of that work that he did that people are resistant to science and change because they don't want to change themselves. They'd rather be right about things. They don't want to accept that somebody else could be right about them. So they're just going to stay the way they are. Yeah. So, yeah, because it's interesting. I'm trying to find the, the passage. But uh, from where the, the title comes from, they'd rather be right. Right. How does it work exactly? Because I was trying to understand that. It's like you have to suspend all biases and beliefs and... Like, right, right. In order to be transformed by bossy, because that's where the, the the selectiveness of the process comes from, right? Right. Uh, bossy herself says, "I can't transform you if you cling to your old ideas, um, if you have delusions and fictions about yourself that you can't let go of, um, if you believe you're better than you really are, if you if you think, oh, this is not going to change me, I'm already perfect.' Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. If those are psychological impediments that she can't overcome. So, if you're like that, you're not going to be fixed. Mm-hmm. If you're really, truly invested in, yes, I want to change myself. I want to get better. I I'm okay, but I could be better, and I'd like to improve. Then she can probably help you. But we find out that. Mabel, Mabel is ready to change her life. She's an elderly woman. She's been okay. She's had a good life, but she'd like to change. And she undergoes this process, which is pretty harrowing when he describes it. It's like, oh, for days and days, she's hooked up to this machine and hooked up to bossy. And they have to keep giving her plasma. And her um, cells are regenerating so fast that at one point they run out of plasma. And they, this is like a whole side plot where they have to go steal yeah, the plasma from it the is. hospital. It's, it's like, what, three or four chapters that they have. They send yeah. Carney, and Carney's like, I can't get that much. And uh, Joe's like, leave it to me. Okay, I'll just use my telepathy to go to the hospital. I'll con and, my way into this. And charm this nurse and charm the doctors and steal all of this plasma and say, oh, I'm just using this for personal reasons don't worry about it mm-hmm. and uh, he comes back with the plasma and it's plenty and uh, they finish the process and Mabel is transformed uh, because she's willing to do so and she comes out being even though I think in the book she's 68 years old she looks like a 21 year old uh, her intelligence is enhanced and she's developed telepathy mm-hmm. which coincidentally draws her 
immediately to Job because Job is a telepath. Um, so it's a, it's a little uncomfortable uh, when you realize here's Joe, this 21-year-old guy, and here's Mabel, who's in reality 68 years old, mm-hmm. uh, but comes out looking like she's in her early 20s and, and super smart and telepathic, and they have immediately start this relationship. Well, <laughs> Just, Joe had this, like, that's the thing about Joe, and I... I will go ahead and say I cannot stand Joe. I hate his character. I think he's I think he's terrible. Like he yeah, he's interesting, I guess. But that's just his whole purpose for like helping with the creation of this machine or whatever was to find an equal, was to create a Mabel who exactly. could like be on level with him or whatever. He's like, exactly. I can I can string these two scientists along and help them in my project, mm-hmm. which really doesn't have anything to do with the bossy project. He's looking to find somebody who's his equal that he can share life with. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ends up actually finding two um, because um, Carney is actually later on changed um, and is also willing to undergo this process. So it's after the like uh, the complete botched attempt in the public uh, to do like the psychologist or something, they tried to transform yeah. him, and he's just too. Up it was uh, Doctor Billings. Tra- yeah, yeah. Doctor Billings is like, apparently, I'm just not willing to give up my my fictions <laughs> and mm-hmm. and my beliefs about myself. So it just didn't work for him, and people thought, well, this is a failure. You guys were going to make us do this, and it doesn't even work. We should get rid of this thing. And then the military wants to take control of it, and we think we can use this as a as a perfect weapon. But uh, and there's another whole side plot on that. So yeah, this book just goes in 15 directions. If you're one of those people that enjoys books that just meander around and don't get to the point, this is this is the book for you. Uh, filled with lots of you know philosophical insights that don't go anywhere and 15 different themes that might or might not be tied up at the end Mm -hmm. um okay so there's that and then there's kind of the idea of eugenics which was a pretty contemporary idea at the time um people would have remembered uh in the very recent past nazi attempts at eugenics Mm -hmm. Uh, they were trying to engineer the perfect Aryans, the perfect German race. Um, and that was part of the reason they tried to get rid of so many people, including the Jews. Uh, they wanted to find the perfect strain of human being and make the perfect human. Mm-hmm. Um, and people would have been aware of that at the time. And I think one of the subtexts in this book is, can we even try to engineer the perfect human and should we even be trying to do that is that something that we even want to do and that's very dangerous and i think that this book kind of shows there's two edges to that it's like you may end up getting some good people but you're going to end up getting some really bad people too well because uh joe freaks out like mid transformation of mabel remember because Mm -hmm. he kind of has this realization that like bossy is a thing that only creates or understands facts yes that was a big part of it and he was like oh no like humans should not be just entirely like unempathetic and fact-based right they can't do that Mm -hmm. Um, if we try to engineer a person that's based on the same parameters that bossy is Mm -hmm. we're in trouble because you know the the kind of results that they're going to get are what we saw with the nazis right Mm -hmm. um they're, they're not going to have any empathy. They won't have any human aspects or characteristics. Um, they'll just 
be pure scientific beings with without any human emotions, mm-hmm. which we don't want. Jill is kind of a shadowy character. Um, he wants to develop Mabel to become kind of a, a partner uh, and an equal, and that happens to Carney as well. So there's the perfect little trio of psych, you know, psychic people that can read everybody's thoughts and start to to influence the opinions of people around them. And you think, is this going to happen to everybody? Is everybody going to develop this kind of ability, or is it just going to be certain people? You don't really know. Um, and it's interesting. Is, it's to bring it back to like the Mabel and Carney thing, because Carney was like completely infatuated with Mabel. So while I was reading it, I actually thought a big uh, plot point or tension was going to become between Carney and Joe, like a competition kind of thing. But it's actually not that at all. Like Carney, it didn't, it didn't turn out that way. Carney yeah. kind of realizes you like, oh, there's a, there's an instant connection between Mabel and Joe, and I'm not going to get involved with that because I'm smart enough now not to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Um, but you're right about Joe. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't really like him either. He's an interesting character, but he's dangerous. Yes. Uh, and those are the kind of people you don't want leading these kinds of projects because you can see, even though it's Hoskins and Billings that develop Posse and get this project going and, uh, Howard Kennedy, who, you know, puts his industrial might behind it, it's really Joe that's controlling everything. He's running the whole thing. And it's very interesting because uh, a lot of times while you're reading the book, it comments on how, like, smart the professors are, but they're also not that smart. Like, Joe truly is the charismatic force that is, like, running the world almost at this point. Pretty much. He's got everything around his finger. And you you have to think, is that his goal? You know, is his goal to create kind of a shadow government of psych- psychics and, and super smart people that will control everybody else. Um, is kind of like we saw in, um, in Alfred Rester's book, mm-hmm. they were, they were trying to uplift a lot of people into, you know, the guild. And then there were other people that didn't want to do that. They wanted to keep them out and keep their, you know, their special cast uh, from, you know, from, letting everybody in so artificial intelligence that was another thing Mm -hmm. will super smart computers render thought obsolete what do you think will they or will they not that's that's a good question and i think that is a that is a question he poses in the book Mm -hmm. if we have super smart computers that can do everything for us we don't have to think about it just push a button does that mean thinking is going to become obsolete we won't have to do any kind of critical thinking or uh, looking at things in, in different perspectives. I don't think so. I think that that's kind of been answered. I think this we... book sounds very, like, also just anti-technology, too. Like, it's, I don't know if Mark Clifton and Frank Riley were necessarily against times of change and in technology, but it sounds very, like, a cautionary tale, like. It is, and it's cheesy at the end because it kind of ends right before they start mass-producing this thing and putting it uh in the public available for everybody he kind of says the choice is yours it's like a bad episode of a sci-fi show in the 50s how will this go it's up to you to decide it's just yeah i mean the ending is terrible and i think gilligan's exactly that that kind of feeling you know this will be continued later on yeah 
And he did write a series of these these stories, and that may have what he, what he had in mind, but it just didn't work out for this book. And like we said, uh, there were two working titles for the book. Uh, They'd Rather Be Right was the serial version that was uh, uh, appeared in the magazine. And then The Forever Machine was the title of the novel, which actually wasn't novelized for a couple more years. So there we go. There we've, we've said a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, some other observations. Uh, is this another Esper crime noir? Did Sounds Clifton like it wants Riley, to be. Did Clifton and Riley steal from Bester, or was it just a coincidence? And it was really cool to write this sci-fi noir kind of stuff in the 50s. Because there's a lot of elements that are the same. Um, Maybe that's a those. big reason, do you think, why it won like the second Hugo Award, was because it was so much like the first one? That is, way that of, is like, psychic abilities. And... That is one way of looking at it, definitely. Ooh, this is really cool. We need to to promote this kind of sci-fi noir psychic uh, esper novel because this is this is a good formula for us to get to get noticed by people because it's a yeah. trend that they were just following and it's like oh, i mean this is kind of a trendy thing to write about in science definitely, fiction right definitely. now definitely i Maybe think that's so why it won. and they were you know they were looking for an audience at the time um mm-hmm. it it was really a burgeoning field it was a new thing so they had all these different ideas to play with and they thought, Oh, this is a cool idea. Let's run with this for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, maybe who knows mm-hmm. the pros in this book. <laughs> I think I described it to you early on. It was like non-writers who are writing in the way they think writers are supposed to write. <laughs> you, you likened it to fan fiction. It is like fan fiction or a bad TV script. Mm-hmm. Let me just read one, <laughs> one excerpt from this book. So people will get an idea so they don't have to read it. Yeah. We've read it, so you don't have to. You're welcome. This is, this is from chapter four. Listen to this prose. For a week, almost day and night, Dwayne Hoskins worked on the reassembly of Bossy. Now that the parts were in his hands again and he had a place to work, undisturbed, he pushed conflict from his, with his circumstances into the background and gave all of his thought to the task of bringing Bossy back to her original state of function. He assured himself that when his job was done, then he would get an attempt to a more realistic approach to his relationships with government and other people. The reassembly took all of his thought. He started out the task as if it were no more than a routine nuisance, which he must endure, since he had been all over this ground in the first assembly. But as the sub-assemblies began to accumulate in their proper relationships again, he grew more and more excited. Guided as he was by a rigid intellectual honesty, that one faculty which makes the scientist differ from any other calling. He found himself freely acknowledging that Bossy was not his creation. Bossy was not even a true product of cybernetics, at least not as that science had been conceived before the start of this project. So you get an idea. It started sounding like really like crime or like, you know, like the little slice of life, but then it just gets like, so ridiculous it's like i would read something like that this is why i read it twice i would read right. that and be like i picked out maybe five words so let's try that again like, like what it, am i what exactly is he trying to say here i mean it's like <laughs> he's trying to get into their heads but what happens is he's like he's writing these philosophical treatises and then you forget about what the scene is i'm like what are they even doing here i have no idea and then you get There's... those those five or six different directions that the plot goes in and these four or five chapter subplots that just go nowhere well i wrote like in my notes like after kind of just reflecting on everything it really feels like you're kind of just joe 
like you're you're seeing the world through the eyes of Joe at some point, and it's just like you're being followed through all of these like situations and plots and cuts and scenes, and like right. there's no actual fleshed out conflict. There's no actual plot. No. There's no actual anything. You're just getting like these here's fever this little dreams. thing. Here's this episode, and then here's this episode. Yes. And these episodes don't really have anything to do with anything, but they do kind of generate. Um, kind of a plot, maybe. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. Um, there's a lot of serious philosophical ideas in this book, uh, like the implications of immortality. You know, what happens if we become immortal? What are we, what are we then? Are we still human? Uh, are we something society's else? society's response to immortality, you know? Right, like, right. all the women were like, oh, I want to be young and beautiful. I like, be I must have beautiful. this bossy. It's like, well, that's a little shallow, but okay. Yeah, and the men are like, oh, I could become a super soldier, or I could become a super tyrant, or a tycoon. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's very gender-based, like 1950s gender-based. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about the limits of human ability. Uh, the potential of uh, artificial artificial intelligence to help or to harm people, depending on how it's applied. Uh, and but those those themes, which are really good ideas, they're never explored for the reason that we discussed before. These plots just don't go anywhere. <laughs> it puts these ideas into these little subplots, and they just get lost. So nothing ever gets developed. Nothing ever gets fully dispo- explored. Mm-hmm. And then there's this idea about appending opinion control that the government um, exercises over people. And apparently, I think this novel, if I worked it out correctly, it was supposed to have taken place in the 80s. Oh. As it says, 40 years after the nuclear bomb. So, which would have been in the 40s. So, I guess it was supposed to have taken place in the 80s. But that idea is never fully developed or given any context at all, other than the government is bad and they want to use opinion control and we got to keep them away. So, that's another very frustrating thing with reading it, honestly. It's like, well, why is the government bad? What are they actually doing right now? Like, why do I care? Why do I care at all? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, and we talked a little bit about what was going on in the 50s um, mm-hmm. when these books were being written, um, the McCarthy hearings and uh, people worried about communism and thought control and all of that kind of thing. There may be some kind of elements of that here, but like I said, it's not developed. It's not given any context. So we really don't know. Is it just something he thought sounded cool and stuck in there? Or I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, Anything to add? No, honestly, I think uh, I think we covered it. Like, ultimately, I didn't hate it. Like, I thought I was really going to hate it. It was fun. It was interesting. It was but fun. I am ready to move on. Katie to is ready reads. to move on to the next book. So, <sighs> here are a few books that could have won the Hugo Award that year if they had been given consideration. And I had, I mentioned last time, I've been uh, reading along um, with Joe Walton's Informal History of the Hugos. Mm-hmm. And she gives in each chapter kind of a list of Joe's perfect Hugo list. Uh, these are other books that could have been considered but weren't even thought of. This list makes me so sad. I know. It really does. so good. There's, I mean, and she says, you know, <sighs> it, it seems like because of this winter, it was a terrible year, but it was actually not. It was a banner year. It was a fantastic year for sci-fi and fantasy. Great. Um, there was a Mirror for Observers by Edgar Pangborn. There was a Mission of Gravity by 
Hal Clement, which some people consider the ultimate hard science fiction book, by the way. Uh, Brainwave or The Broken Sword, both of which came out that year by Powell Anderson. Caves of Steel by Asimov. The Fellowship of the Ring by but Tolkien. Up, but up, but up, but up, but <laughs> why? Why did that I win? Know, I know. Did that I ever am... win an award? Uh, it never won any of these awards, no. Yeah. No, And Tolkien wouldn't have wanted them anyway. He wasn't yeah. really interested in that kind of thing. Uh, uh, but I am. I, I am too, right? <laughs> uh, I Am Legend also came out that year. Richard Matheson. <laughs> and uh, Search the Sky by Pole and Cornbluth. So any of those books could have been a perfect Hugo winner, but... Tolkien, maybe not, because the Fellowship was really considered to be part of one book. Yeah. Um, and he might not have wanted it for that reason. But anyway. So there we are, folks. 1955's Hugo winner, <laughs> They'd Rather Be Right, by Mark Clifton and Frank Riley. What were your final thoughts on the book, Tim? I've definitely made my opinion known. I did not love it. Uh-huh. I did not hate it. I thought it had some really interesting ideas that were never developed. Uh, it could have been done better. And there were definitely books that year that could have won that, that, that didn't. <laughs> um, I would give it being generous. I would give it two stars out of five. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so. My whole scale now is based on, it goes from like, communion to 10 so it's definitely like with communion <laughs> being one star so it's definitely like a 2.5 for me okay cool um <laughs> that's a good way to go <laughs> wow anyway next time we are going to have what promises to be a really good book to talk about <sighs> our next book is robert heinlein and his first of four appearances on the hugo novel awards uh we're going to look at his 1956 novel double star which is going to be fun to look at. I'm excited to read it. I've never really read any Heinlein. I started reading Stranger in a Strange Land, but I got halfway through and figured out it was edited, and I got very discouraged. So. Right, yeah. <laughs> oh, hey, when we get there, we can talk about why it was edited. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, yeah and that'll, that'll be just at a few ep- episodes from now. So, Ooh. yep, Double Star's next. All right. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening. Definitely pick up a copy of Double Star and read it before uh, before we talk about read it. Read along with us, but don't read They'd Rather Be Right. Don't read They'd Rather did Be Right. It's a waste of your time, really. We did the work for you. You don't have to do it. You're very welcome. Exactly. Well, everybody, have a good week, and thanks for listening to SciFix. Thanks a lot. See you next time.